where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. Technically speaking, this Bible is not mine. I've used it for 19 years, and it has the name Aaron Richards on it in gold letters down at the bottom. I have no idea who Aaron is, but our journeys connected at Asylum Hill Congregational Church in Hartford, Connecticut. The inscription plate says it was given to him on October 22, 1995. I came onto the scene in 2001, January 2001. So it had sat there for a little while. And I picked it up because uh, it had the version that was used in that congregation, the new revised standard version, and it's been with me ever since, and it's gotten a lot of wear and tear. And I think about Aaron a lot, actually. I have no idea when this was presented to him. I imagine it was confirmation, but it could have been on joining the church as an adult. I have no idea how old Aaron is, but he's in my thoughts a lot. And I'm going to read from this Bible to you this morning from the first letter of the Corinthians, chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as God chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. Now I'm guessing we all know what it's like to be a part of something bigger. You're living here in Colorado, you know what it's like to be a Broncos fan or a Rockies fan or against the Broncos or Rockies in favor of your own home team. But the group of fans that gather around sports, you remember when we used to have sporting events on a regular basis and big crowds would gather? They were very diverse crowds. And it didn't matter what section of a community you came from, how old you were, what color your skin was, what level of school you completed, what kind of job you had, you were all there for one purpose. It was beautiful. And it will be again. In Beth's family, they have 
a very important custom of wherever they travel, they always wear a Boston Red Sox hat. In fact, this is something that's enculturated into their family from the time kids are very small. You know, if you wear this hat, when you go traveling somewhere, you are going to run into a Boston Red Sox fan. And I have seen that at work dozens and dozens of times. Honestly, I just walk away shaking my head and say, you people are everywhere. Being part of a church community is the same thing. There's no entrance exam. There's no characteristic that must be present other than a willingness to gather around the teachings of Jesus. We don't require a set of beliefs. We don't require an age. We don't require an economic status, uh, ability, anything. And one of the questions for today, because we know what it's like to be part of a body and to be part of something bigger than ourselves, is when does religion become real as a force for good and justice in the world? When does that happen? Like, I wonder if Aaron even knows that this Bible was left behind. Does he ever think about his time at that church in Hartford, Connecticut? And were there teachings that he learned there that continue to be at work in him, whether he's aware of it or not? And so the question of when does religion become real could also be, when do we recognize the foundational teachings that religion can offer that influence our behaviors and our choices in the world? And this leads me to our peacemaker of the day. His name is Ibu Patel, and he is a Muslim. He was raised in the religion of Islam and is well acquainted with the customs and the practices and the prayers. And he speaks about this, when does religion become real, as a way of developing new eyes. You know, he was enculturated into the tradition of Islam, but I'm not sure... Um, that it really meant anything to him in terms of his, his external life, uh, in terms of how he engaged um, in his pursuit and his love of social justice. Not initially, anyway. His college years were spent in Chicago, and social justice was very important to him. And he was introduced to the person of Dorothy Day, who was co-founder of the Catholic Worker, which was a movement that also started houses of hospitality that were designed to be in solidarity with the, with the poor. And he went to this house of hospitality, and he said it was unlike anything he had ever done before. You know, when he walked into this place, he saw a mix of melanin levels in people's skins. So he saw black and brown and white-skinned people. He heard Spanish and English. He couldn't tell the difference between the people that worked there and the people that were visiting and in need of something. Nobody asked him for his ID. Nobody asked him why, why he was there. They just said, are you staying for dinner? And after his time there, towards the end, he started to ask people, like, 
why do you do this? And the people who had been a part of this movement knew these words from Dorothy Day, and they uttered them with ease. We do this because God has shown us the way. All we have to do is follow the path. Let's listen now to Ibu in his own words in this segment from YouTube. Oh, a couple years later, I went to India. I stayed with my grandmother, summer of 1998, summer before I went to graduate school. I figured she'd taken over my living room enough times I could return the favor, take over hers. I did Muslim prayers with my grandmother, um, kind of at least with a little less stubbornness and grudgingness than I did before. But what I really wanted was faith that inspired loving service. And I had found, I thought, the purity of that, the heart of that in Dorothy Day. And then one day I woke up in my grandmother's living room and there, sitting kind of nervously on the couch, was a woman wearing a torn white nightgown, several sizes, too large for her. And I said, Mama, who, who is she? She didn't look like she was part of the extended family, didn't really look like she was part of the household help. My grandmother says kind of offhandedly, well, the leader of the local Muslim prayer center called me the other day and said that he knew a young girl whose father and uncle were abusing her. And I said, well, send her to me. I'll take care of her. So I didn't ask for her real name because it could be dangerous to her. We'll call her Anissa. I kind of sat up straight and I looked at Anissa and I looked at my grandmother and I said, Mama, I think you're a bit fragile to be just taking refugee women into your home. I mean, what if these two crazy men are roaming the streets looking for her? What then? My grandmother gave me that arched eyebrows look and she said, how old are you? I said, I'm 22. She said, I've been doing this for twice the number of years you've been alive. And she padded over to a shoebox and she opened it. And inside that shoebox were dozens and dozens of old Polaroid pictures of all these women from all over India, from Calcutta, from Ahmedabad, from Delhi, from Gujarat, from Madras who had heard of Ashraf Maji, had heard that if you came to her, if you needed help, she would help you. And they came, trains, buses, their last rupees, their last paisa, with their kids, sometimes pouring wet from the monsoon, showed up on the door, and my grandmother helped them. There she is, with two of those women, Sakurbai and Gulshan. And after about seven of these stories, I asked my grandmother, you know, why do you do this? And she gave me the same look and answered with the same tone that that female Catholic worker did at the House of Hospitality in Champaign-Urbana. Because I'm a Muslim. This is what Muslims do. This is what Muslims do. What do Christians do? What do people who orient around the teachings of Jesus do? Do you ever make that connection between the teachings of Jesus and your personal or family actions? You know, why did you, when we used to gather together here, why did you bring toilet paper and why did you bring canned goods for the Hour Center? Did you do it because it's the right thing to do? 
And if that's your answer, then where did you learn that it was the right thing to do? Who taught you that? Or when you say, we're going to go to the hour center and we're going to make lunch or we're going to bring lunches and we're going to hand them out. Do you introduce it as we're just, you know, these people are hungry, we need to feed them? Or, because you know it is the right thing to do, I get that, but why is it the right thing to do? Did it have anything to do with Jesus saying, I was hungry and you gave me food? I think sometimes there's an embarrassment to connect actions or reluctance to connect actions or teachings to actions. We don't always want to tie it back to our church community for some reason. And there can be a lot of reasons for that. And maybe, maybe I'll say more about that later. But it's worth thinking about. Ibu Patel asked the questions, what does it look like to create spaces where faith can be a bridge to cooperation, to really come from a foundation of faith and say it is because of the teachings of my faith and where that overlaps with other faith traditions that we have common ground. And he spends a lot of time on college campuses recruiting and training people to be interfaith bridge builders and he considers interfaith bridge builders as an identity category, just like someone would proudly say, I'm an environmentalist. These people say, I'm an interfaith bridge builder. God knows we can use it. We can use a place of intersection where people who orient around religion differently can join together. And this type of identity, this type of ministry, requires a knowledge base of service across many different religions. There is that foundation. The teachings of Jesus, we have to remember, are the teachings of a Jewish man who was born and died Jewish. And so Christian and Jewish teachings have much in common when it comes to service. And so do other religions. And so this needs to be shared and learned because if we're using the news as a source for learning, it's not going to work. And I think that's sometimes where the reluctance comes in to talk about being Christian and Christian teachings, because in the news, what is portrayed is often a lot different than the pride video that was shown while we were waiting for worship to start. The voices sometimes in the news are very different than what we practice here in this community. And so becoming an interfaith bridge builder requires a lot of education and training and the development of a specific skill set to be attentive to the nuances of difference in belief, but to also have a very good understanding of the foundation that can connect. It's a way of developing new eyes to see people who orient around religion differently, who are working together for the common good, because it does happen. It is happening as I speak. 
Let's take a look at another segment um, that was a part of Ibu Patel's early formation years. I actually want to open with a line uh, by Marcel Proust. It's a great line that makes me think about what the college experience is all about. Uh, he says, the true journey of discovery is not in seeing new landscapes, it's in developing new eyes. And a moment in which I developed a new eyes around religious diversity happened for me in Cape Town, South Africa in December of 1999. I was there with some friends to commemorate the turning of the millennium at a conference called the Parliament of the World's Religions and I saw Mandela speak. And he comes to the podium looking even more regal in person, even though I was like in the nosebleeds, right? You could just tell that a giant had arrived. And he came and he just filled the space with his presence and somebody in the back stood up and started to do a, a chant, a Kosa chant for the arrival of the chief and Mandela just kind of cocked his head and, and let it wash over him. And then he pointed out into the cape and he let his finger stay there for a moment or two and he said, I would still be there. And there was Robben Island where he'd spent 10,000 days of his life imprisoned. He said, I would still be there if it wasn't for the Christians and the Muslims, the Hindus and the Jews, the Baha'is and the African traditionalists and the secular humanists of South Africa coming together in the struggle against apartheid. And it was a striking moment for me because I was in South Africa because I'd been so inspired by stories of the struggle. I mean, this was the last legally racist country to fall. It was in some ways the end of a remarkable, ugly era, the ushering in of something new. But I had missed this part of history that Mandela opened with. I'd missed the dimensions of religious diversity involved in the struggle. And I thought to myself, for all I'd read about this, you know, for the depth of my care and concern and my knowledge, I had literally no idea that there was this significant group of Jews involved in this movement, that there was something called the Muslim Youth Movement, Farid Esak, who married me 15 years, actually five years later. Ibrahim Rasul, Ibrahim Musa, Rashid Omar. Desmond Tutu wasn't just a great leader, he was a great archbishop. It was the archbishop, Desmond Tutu. There was this massive religious dimension involved in this movement that I had such great admiration for. For me, it was new eyes. It's new eyes. How about new ears? Let's listen again to one of the verses from this morning. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. It might be worth watching the movie Selma this week. And if you've already watched it, watch it again. With an eye for the religious diversity that was part of the march from Selma to Montgomery. You'll remember the uh, Unitarian Universalist pastor who was martyred. 
Dan Berrigan was present, a Jesuit priest, who asked the question, where is the church? In the brick and mortar that we left behind or in the streets of Selma? And a nun in full habit said, we are the church, as she marched in those streets. Abraham Joshua Heschel was there, and he acknowledged, I know the way that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and I worship is different, but when we were marching in Selma, I felt like my legs were a prayer. See, that, even that, we talk about Martin Luther King, but what about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who prayed at the foot of the bridge and who was very much connected to his faith? I've seen the church at work for the common good and other traditions joining in as well. When I was at Asylum Hill Church in Hartford and I first met Aaron's Bible, I was very much in the middle of the marriage equality struggle. And it wasn't just Christian voices. It was Jewish and Muslim. It was Unitarian. And there were some that said, you know, I'm really not sure that the church should be involved in this. And I understand that question. I know people like to think that things can be separate. I understand where that comes from. I had some reluctance myself. It was scary to engage in that struggle and to be a voice in that struggle. It was scarier to hear the things that were being said and the things that I was asked to respond to. And I came to the conviction that I am firmly entrenched in now is that in the places where church used its power and influence, meaning its scripture and its teachings to create and maintain the division and the dehumanization, the church must use its voice to confess. We were wrong. That was not good theology. Those were not healthy teachings. They were not fair. There was no justice. And in confessing, the church has an opportunity to open the door and usher in something new. Ibu Patel says, and this is very important in this work because I know you're thinking, well, not every church confessed this and said it was wrong. He says, we must let go of the fiction that everyone will come around to your view. If we left it up to popular votes, our country would be very different. Our country was influenced by voices that expanded and acknowledged the dignity of each person. So we must let go of the fiction that everyone will come around to your view 
And the healthier way is to understand that on some fundamental things, we will disagree, and that is okay. This is a pluralistic country. We can disagree. We can disagree strongly. But that is not permission for violence. That is not permission for a hierarchy of value of people. And that is not permission to take life. And so not everybody was a part of that struggle and not everybody's going to be a part of every struggle. But the way I hear and live the teachings of Jesus, it is very much in sync with those teachings. So where is the church now? Well, on Wednesday, the church will be at a Habitat build gathering around housing. Now it will be predominantly folks from our church who are volunteering, but the staff members for Habitat, we don't know what their religious orientation is. We don't know what the religious orientation of the people who will be living in the home is going to be, but that doesn't matter. We will gather in the belief that all may have a home some kind of place to call home. On Thursday, or many Thursdays in the past two months, our congregation has gathered at the Hour Center and given out meals. We didn't ask about the religious orientation about the restaurants or the other volunteers at the Hour Center or the people driving up in the car. It was a multi-religious experience where we all gather around the willingness and the wanting to provide food and to ask the question, why are people hungry? At Roosevelt Park last weekend, there was a demonstration protesting systemic and cultural racism. And six of our young families that I'm aware of were present. I know there were others there as well. And what you may notice in those moments is that I tend to go in very formal clergy garb. I mean formal in a Colorado way. I wear black shorts. I wear a short sleeve black clergy shirt with a little tab, a button that says Black Lives Matter. And I'm there representing the church and the teachings of Jesus. You see, the church used its power and influence its scripture and teachings to justify the enslavement of black people. It is beyond time to confess that. Beyond time. And now to proclaim that black lives matter. In fact, I wonder if maybe it's time to create a Black Lives Matter video. We have a beautiful pride video now a long-standing commitment to say LGBTQ plus lives matter at a time when the LGBTQ plus community was being discriminated against and not allowed to engage in some of the privileges of being a US citizen. 
And now, by the way, some of those rights are being taken away around health care during a global pandemic. Do you hear that? So what about black lives? I mean, let's bring our Bibles, whosoever they are, and let's open them. And let's read the scriptures that serve as the foundation for our belief. Now, this is not necessarily the belief for me. I'm going to share with you a scripture that is foundational to me that applies to just any struggle. And it applies to any attempt to join together for the common good of all people. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. You know, you, you lay aside the sin that clings so closely by confessing and naming it. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In other words, around the teachings of Jesus, who went first, and who knows what it's like to be met with opposition. To Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. He came from God. He engaged in the struggle based on his relationship with God that he talked about all the time. And the teachings that tried to remind us that we are just part of the body, not the whole body. And then he returned to God and continues to encourage us through the works of the Holy Spirit. And all that have gone before us. In the pursuit of justice, we never work alone, ever. God will show us the way. All we do is follow the path. And if you're interested, and if you would like to create a video, send me a chat message. I'm going to be checking chat for the remainder of the service, but then it gets cut off, so make your decision now. And Amelia and I will be in touch with you. I'm going to say it again. In the pursuit of justice, we never work alone. God will show us the way. All we do is follow the path.